Psalm 126, a song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Well, morning, everybody. Really good to uh, be with you to keep that page of the Bible open. And uh, as usual, there's an outline in the program for you to follow along, uh, if that's uh, helpful. Uh, it really is uh, a very great uh, joy and privilege for me to open God's Word with you on your 10th birthday. Uh, because Christchurch Ellsfield is a joy to us all. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, we thank God every time we remember you. In all our prayers for all of you, we always pray with joy because of your partnership in the Gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the, until the day of Christ Jesus. What he's begun here, he will complete. Uh, we thank God for all who've been born again here, who've discovered the joy of knowing the risen Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. We thank God for all who've been growing in Christ-like maturity here. We thank God for your marvellous elders, for Rob and John and Al. I was thinking, by the way, Al, you are the coolest elder <laughs> in the whole of coalition. I mean, I, I know you're actually 76, but you've been about 10. And um, anyway, we thank God for your wonderful staff, for Linda, for Paul and for Ash. But above all, for your amazing senior pastor, Andy, and his wife, Sarah, who, despite very significant personal challenges and denominational obstacles, have continued to faithfully teach and to lead you in the way of the cross set out in the Bible that leads to the crown of eternal life. As you know, they're not average. They're very special people. <coughs> Andy and Sarah, you have done a remarkable job here. And we thank God for you. In fact, it's wonderful to see many old friends who are here. I mean, Jenny's still singing. <laughs> as she was on the first day, I think. It's wonderful to see old friends, and from far and wide as well, even from Arnhem Land. Great to see you here. When we planted at CCE, I began in Janet McGrath ten years ago with people from Dundonald in Christchurch, Mayfair and Ballam, as I remember. We were driven by the same vision then that drives our commission network today. That is to assist, to assist in evangelising London. We're not the only people trying to do this. We are assisting in evangelising London by planting and establishing 360 diverse reformed evangelical churches in London. And we have observed often the parallels between the emerging uh, tragedy of London spiritually and the catastrophe of the sinking of the Titanic back in 1912, when 1,500 people died, and the numbers of people who died were hugely increased by four factors. Firstly, there were not enough lifeboats for people on the ship, and there are not enough gospel churches in London for the people who live here. We need a lot more. Uh, secondly, the lifeboat crew were not well trained in how to handle the lifeboats. 
And we need to provide training for churches and for our churches to reach the lost in the communities where we live. Further, shockingly, the poorer passengers were locked in the lower decks. And sadly, in this city, it is still true that amongst the poorer districts of the city, there are not enough gospel churches, and we need to do something about it. And we're trying. But fourthly, and most shockingly of all, the half-empty lifeboats hovered on the edge of the disaster, fearful of going back for the passengers who were drowning for fear of being swamped by those passengers. And so they waited effectively until the screaming had stopped and then went back for the dead. And uh, it is sadly true that across London there are half-empty churches and some are not doing much to go for those lost, those who are drowning in sin, uh, effectively waiting until the screaming has stopped and then offering a funeral. Well, we are not going to do that. We're not going to sit in half-empty churches and just wait. We're going to do whatever we can to reach those who are drowning in sin here in this city. So that is the vision that has driven commission for the salvation of many people and always to the glory of God. And so Christ Church Ellsford is a joy to all of us today and above all, I'm sure, to Almighty God who has given the growth represented here today. Now, I'm very glad to look with you um, at Psalm 126. Uh, it's entitled, A Song of Ascents, which makes it our song of pilgrimage. This psalm is part of a collection of psalms from 120 to 134, uh, each entitled A Song of Ascents, presumably sung by Jewish pilgrims as they approached Jerusalem to celebrate one of their great annual feasts. And you go there uh, today, as I have many times, there are roads winding their way up through the, the desert terrain to get to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is built. And uh, though these psalms vary hugely in their content, they share the common perspective of believers enduring the trials of an arduous pilgrimage through desert terrain, daily sustained by the joyful prospect of gathering with God's people in his glorious temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And so these psalms continue to sing to us today. They sing for in John 5, Jesus said the Old Testament points to him, and in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul explains the Old Testament was written for us, for our encouragement as we read it. For behind the many human authors, there is of course one coordinating divine author, the Spirit of God. Throughout the various covenantal periods of the Bible, there's one uniting storyline concerning the kingdom of God. And above all the various heroic kings and priests and prophets of the Old Testament, there is one supreme hero, uh, the Son of God. In other words, we're to read the Old Testament in the light of the new, as the promise looking for the fulfillment in Christ. And therefore, it's clear these songs invite us today to reflect upon our own pilgrimage through the hardships and trials of life, to gather in heaven with the vast international Christian people of God in the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal home of God and his people. So the, the song breaks into two halves, uh, Game of Football, both introduced, verse 1 and verse 4, by reference to restoring fortunes, or more literally, of returning captives. It's a phrase used in the Psalms both of the restoration of exiles from Babylon in the 6th century BC as they 
uh, were brought back by God from captivity in Babylon back to God's dwelling, earthly dwelling in Jerusalem in Israel. And also it's used in Job of the restoration of God's blessings after his suffering. So it's used in two ways. For this psalmist lived, as we also lived, between two stages of restoration promised in the Gospel. They looked back to the restoration from Babylon to Jerusalem as we look back to when we became Christians, for those of us that are. When we were restored from the kingdom of darkness, England, into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So we look back to the day of our restoration, the day of our rescue, when we became Christians. But they also looked forward to the complete restoration of the kingdom in abundance as we look forward to the renewal of creation and the resurrection of our bodies into righteousness and joy. So like them, we look forward. There's more to come. In one sense, what's already happened is the guarantee of what will happen. The first stage of God's promise is the guarantee of the second. The return to Jerusalem was proof that the Lord would finish what he promised, as we've already said, that God will finish the work. He will carry it on to completion in us one day. So verses 1 to 3, the pilgrims look back to remembering their overwhelming joy when the Lord brought them back from Babylon. And as we shall see, this is like Christians looking back with joy to when we were first saved. And then the second half, verse 4 to 6, the pilgrims look forward to the joy of God completing his restoration with abundant, fruitful harvests. Parallel with Christians looking forward to the fruits of our evangelistic labours in heaven, which makes the psalm perfect for today. We should celebrate and rejoice what God, in what God has done in savouring and gathering people into Christchurch, Earlsfield, and look forward with confidence to him bringing us with over, overwhelming joy to the fruitful harvest of good works in heaven. Their joy in recalling our past is ours too. So firstly, verse 1, we rejoiced when the Lord restored us from captivity. Look with me at verse 1 again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said amongst the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So firstly, we rejoiced when the Lord restored us from captivity. They remember the joy of salvation. Verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captives, our mouths were filled with laughter. When the exiled captives returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, their excitement wasn't only in being liberated from the frightful tyranny of Babylon, but in the excitement of arriving in God's reconstructed Jerusalem. You can imagine they dreamed of that mouths open. They've rebuilt, they've rebuilt the walls. Famously, of course, under Nehemiah in 52 days, the returning exiles had reconstructed the walls. Must look magnificent to the ancient eye to see those walls all around Jerusalem. And of course, under Ezra, they reconstructed a beautiful temple. They must look at it, it's beautiful. So they're there. We dreamed, we, we, we sang with joy. So also for us, it's not only the relief of being liberated from our addictive enslavement to the selfishness of sin, that brings joy. But there's also the joy of life amongst God's people 
here in church. It's not what we've been saved, only what we've been saved from. It's also what we were saved for. That brings us such joy as we look back. The psalmist remembers how good it was. Perhaps you can recall, if you've become a Christian, what it was like when you first became a Christian. How exciting it was when you first began to read the Bible for yourself. And it began to make sense. Never did before. Remember how exciting that was? Or when you first began to pray, knowing that your Heavenly Father was listening, and you realised He's there, and you're not just speaking nonsense into the air. He's listening. Remember the joy of first prayer? Remember the joy of discovering that your real purpose in life is to glorify God. When you first understood the royal joy of the real joy of Christmas and Easter, remember the first time on Christmas Day you actually bothered to thank God for the gift of a Saviour. And prior to that, it always been so such a whole lot of commercial nonsense. First time you prayed at Easter, in fact, it was dying for you, suffering for you on the cross. Remember your first experience of the interest and the tenderness of your brothers and sisters here at church. I mean, the testimonies on the film have mentioned that. And many of you who are new here will, uh, will know it, it's an extraordinary thing to be loved by the church family. We were like men who dreamed, delirious with happiness. Our mouths were filled with laughter. We laughed a lot. Our tongues were filled with songs of joy. I couldn't help humming when I was making coffee. Because we've been saved. For those of, those of us who aren't yet Christians, can I encourage you? You have a wonderful experience ahead of you. To know salvation in Christ is a deep personal joy. If you don't yet know that, can I tell you, it's not all bad news because the reason is not there's something wrong with you, it's just that you're not yet a Christian. And that joy awaits you when you turn to Christ. There is so much joy. If you ever go to church and you think, they all seem to sing with so much personal joy, and I don't have that. Is it just that I'm, they're all zealots and I'm not? No, it's just that they're not yet a Christian, it's fine. But when you discover salvation in Christ, you'll sing like that. But maybe for some of us that joy has, has dulled as we've gone through hardships. If weariness has dulled our delight in being saved, then either we've forgotten how miserable it was to live under the tyranny, of idols like money and sex and power that promise happiness but cannot satisfy and certainly can't save. Or perhaps familiarity is bred content for the joy of belonging to the, the church family. We're not yet in heaven yet, but we are pilgrims. Life is a lot better now than it was as a slave in Babylon. And then we go to a very moving funeral of a man called the Brigadier Stalman, who um, was quite a character up in Emmanuel Church in Wimbledon. And that the church was full and, and the stories were told about the brigadier. And um, we were constantly regaled with, with uh, stories of how much fun he was. He'd been a keen Christian most of his life. He'd been in uh, World War II, he'd been shot through the neck with a big wound inside his head. He'd, he'd actually been the second black rod in Parliament for a while. He was a very senior, much loved uh, figure, figure. But he was always so much fun. And uh, as, as each of the boys stood up to tell us stories of, of the... Uh, wicked uh, humour that he had. I tried to work out why was this man so much full of fun. I think the answer is because he understood the gospel. When you really understand how good God has been to us in Christ, even if life has suffering and hardship in it, you can't help having fun. 
because God has been so good to us. Nehemiah told the exiles at Watergate when they returned, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, there is great strength to be found in the joy of knowing the Lord. Notice also that joy was evangelistic, verse 2. Then it was said amongst the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. As the Jews celebrated the restoration of Jerusalem, the surrounding nations were forced to admit the Lord did very good to them. You have to admit that. He'd famously rescued them from Egypt, and now he'd done it again. He'd rescued them from Babylon. And their rejoicing demanded attention. So today, it isn't just claiming salvation, it's rejoicing in salvation that compels unbelievers to observe. You've got something good that I wish I had. Even when life is tough and hard for you, even when you're bereaved and you cry, nevertheless, there seems to be this irrepressible confidence in God. I wish I had some of that. Joy, you see, is evangelistic. The Lord has done great things for them. And likewise, our joy in what the Lord has done will arouse curiosity amongst the most trenchant atheists and hedonists. Our joy is a powerful missional magnet. This is a church that celebrates. We have wonderful music here. You sing well because joy is infectious. But notice their joy was in the Lord. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. Not, we're great, but the Lord is great. And we're filled with joy. The focus of our joy is not just the things done, but the Lord who did them. Israel rejoiced in being liberated from captivity and returning to Zion because it was the dwelling place of their Lord and they could once more dream near, draw near to him. And the Lord has done even greater things for us through giving his son Jesus to die on the cross. And that gift is extraordinary and even in the midst of suffering. In fact, it's almost in the midst of suffering most that Christians are distinctive. When those who have no hope Look at us who have and wonder. Uh, across our network, as, as you know, and not least here in this church, we've uh, been grieving, haven't we, for two teenage boys who died in the last six months. If I may refer to the earlier of the two, perhaps a little less raw, but some of us may have been at the funeral of a Charlie Perry at uh, Wellington College. Um, maybe you knew the family well. It's very striking to watch um, this Christian family in a packed auditorium where the chapel holds 700, but there were 1,000 people crammed into Wellington College for a funeral. And uh, each member of the family was involved in some kind of testimony to the goodness of God. Uh, most moving for me personally was watching Fred, or Andrew, senior surgeon, carrying the son's coffin down to the front of church. And then in his tribute to his son, Charlie, explaining that he'd learned so much about God's love from uh, him and Rosie bringing up Charlie, various stages of his life. Then he finished by saying, and watching my son die has helped me to understand a little more of how much God loves us, that he should give his son to die in our place on a cross for our sins. And of course, the Everyone in the chapel was just stunned at this faith in a man who's just watched his son die. And I think the singing and the joy and the confidence that he and all who were with him there have in the Lord Jesus Christ is a powerful testimony to those who don't know that joy for themselves. 
So can I encourage you firstly to be a church that is constantly filled with joy because you constantly recall the great things that God has done for you. Yes, in gathering you as a church and providing you for you day by day, but supremely in giving his son to die for you on a cross, to swap places with you, where he was treated as if he was you, punished for our sin, so we can be treated as if we are him and accepted into heaven as righteous sons of God. A simple and glorious swap right at the heart of the Christian message. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. And I encourage you to continue to look back to what he's done for you and to be filled with joy as the central piece of your missional outreach here at Christ Church. And secondly, more briefly, and we will rejoice when the Lord restores us with fruitfulness. Look with me at verses 4 to 6. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. In other words, we will rejoice when the Lord restores us with fruitfulness. The psalmist calls on the Lord now to complete his restoration of the nation. Just as our past restoration gives us confidence to call on the Lord to complete his restoration in us. To make our lives fruitful in eternity. So the Lord will renew our future as streams renew the desert. Verse 4, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Uh, the Israelites were finding life hard, even though they were back in Palestine. They were not yet enjoying the abundant Blessings of peace and prosperity that were promised in God's word. And so using the same phrase from the past, Simon boldly calls on the Lord to restore them fully in the future. He uses this wonderful image of a desert. Uh, the word Negev, the name of the desert, means parched. To the south of Israel. So you can imagine those bone dry dunes and gullies, dusty all year, until suddenly the winter rains arrive, flooding the desert with torrents, of refreshing water, generating abundant grass and flowers. I imagine it's a bit like the Northern Territories of Australia. It's certainly like Cape Town and the Cape in southern Africa at the moment. They're desperate for the rain to come. But of course, there's a spiritual equivalent of that. However dry and lifeless the situation may seem in Israel, the psalmist knows from the desert streams that the Creator can revive and restore fully when He is ready to do so. And likewise, even if our lives can seem lifeless and dry. The Lord can invigorate the driest desert. He's promised to do it for us one day when Christ returns, when our dry bones will be resurrected and the shriveled earth will be full of abundant life, when all creation is renewed and his people are renewed for life in his presence. But notice the joy of reaping must follow tears of sowing. Verse 5. Those who sow in tears that is, those who go out weeping. The work of sowing and reaping was familiar in an agricultural community, but you can't have the joy and prosperity of harvesting unless you first accept the tearful, backbreaking toil of sowing. And so in the New Testament, the Christian life of fruitful good works, especially in evangelism, is often likened to sowing and reaping. And we must expect to sow in tears 
in the hard labor and the disappointments of evangelism. There's nothing wrong with the seed of the gospel, but so often when we sow it, people are disinterested, and that's discouraging. It's enough to drive you to tears from time to time. You know that's how it was for Jesus too, don't you? And he explained early on in his ministry to his disciples who were wondering why so few people seemed to be interested in his message. If you remember, he likened his word, his teaching, to seed. And he was saying, look, don't conclude from my unpopularity that I am not bringing the kingdom of God. And he explained, look, in some people, the seed of the word is snatched away by Satan. It never even sinks in. Just like we would say, it goes in one ear and goes out the other. Thank you so much for a lovely talk, Vicar. Absolutely no understanding of anything that's been said. In some, the seed is snatched away by Satan. In some, the seed is scorched by persecution. As I say, sometimes there's initial excitement, but when it looks like it's going to cost something to be a Christian, people disappear quickly. And then thirdly, in some people, the seed is strangled by worldly concerns. Yeah, I'm really interested, but I've, I've got to be away on weekends. I, you know, I've got a boat, I've got a house, I've got some family. And somehow the seed never gets going, never goes deep. It's all right. Help is on its way. From at least two different people. <laughs> but, said Jesus, nevertheless, although there is so much rejection of the seed, of the gospel, nevertheless, in some people, the seed is fruitful. And not just a little bit fruitful, but incredibly fruitful. There will be a great harvest in the end. But only if you sow seed. You can't have the great harvest if you don't sow seed. And we all want to be reapers. We all want to be harvesters. We all want to be collecting the great crowds. We want to have the great abundant harvest. We want to be there in heaven. And we have to know, yeah, but you have to sow seed to begin with. And wait. But, says the psalmist, there will be joy one day. Verse 5, you will reap the songs of joy. Verse 6, you will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves. <coughs> Those who sow in tears, and only they, will know the intense joys of the harvest. In a general sense, the hardships of our lives will be swallowed up in the joys of our final restoration. But more specifically, where we sow the weak little seeds of the gospel, we will reap a harvest of huge bundles of sheaves of grain with joy. In other words, perhaps you've taught in Sunday school. You know, year after year, little kids, you teach in Sunday school, the family moves away, and you think, have I wasted my time? Ten years later, I'm still here teaching Sunday school. What's happened to those kids? They've gone somewhere else. Or maybe you've been leading a small group. Maybe you've been evangelizing your neighbors. Maybe you've been talking. And so often people move on. And we don't get to see any results at all. And we feel hugely discouraged. And we wonder what's happened. And then, unknown to you, 10 years later, 20 years later, some bloke comes back, some kid who's now grown up. Yeah, yeah, no, here's me and my family. We're all believers in the Lord Jesus. That kind of thing happens. All the time. I met, I met a couple yesterday who 20 years ago, well not 20 years ago, 2002, 16 years ago, were coming to a ministry 
I was involved with lunchtime in, in, in Westminster, actually. Haven't seen them, they weren't Christians. Both Christians now with their family. Because the seed has grown in their land. 16 years later, you see it. My favorite story about that is uh, when I worked as a commercial lawyer in London, I worked at a firm called Travis Smith, and there was a, a property lawyer there called uh, Julian. And uh, one day he came in with a, uh, an ash mark on his head, because it was Ash Wednesday. And, and I, no, no, I knew a bit, so I, I was cheeky. I said, oh, you've got a dirty mark on your head. And he said, yeah, he said, it's Ash Wednesday. I said, well, you've got a dirty mark on your head. He said, well, I know I'm a Catholic, it's Ash Wednesday. So I said, oh, so you know lots about guilt and not, not much about forgiveness then? He said, what? I said, sorry, I thought that was normal. I thought, being a Catholic, you know lots about guilt and not much about forgiveness. So anyway, that sort of provoked him. I mean, that's my mind, don't you? And, um, So we, we had lunch, several lunches, and took him along to St. Helens, the lunchtime service, and uh, three months later, he became a Christian. And then he left the firm a year later, and we lost touch. And then I began to realize where he was about uh, 10 years ago. I'd been following him for a while. And then uh, two months ago, I had a Skype with him and his wife, Caroline. Uh, they're in Malawi, where they've been planting churches and helping agricultural uh, workers to, uh, uh, to grow crops in one of the poorest areas of Africa. Last year, they baptized 300 new believers. And they planted, by God's grace, 35 churches in Malawi. And we were laughing about what God, God can do with a little dirty mark on the forehead. But you have to sow seed if you want to see a harvest. So can I encourage you to keep sowing with tears? I know it's backbreaking labour. I know it doesn't look like there's very much that's happening. But if you want to see a harvest, you have to sow seed. If you want the joy of reaping a great harvest that the work that God has begun here in Christchurch Earlspit, may I urge you, be a church that not only rejoices in what God has done for you in the past, and be that. Never stop celebrating what God has done for you in the past through Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you also, never stop being a church that sows the seed of the gospel and is willing not yet to reap. Don't get frustrated that the harvest isn't ready yet. Just keep sowing the seed. Our heads and pray. Let me give you just a moment of quiet, perhaps to thank God for the great things He's done for you, and perhaps to ask Him for courage to sow seed in the future. great things for us and we are filled with joy. Heavenly Father we thank you for today and for the opportunity to stop and to say thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for your goodness to this church over 10 years. Thank you for all the people whose lives have been blessed through this church. We praise you for how it's grown and become such a, a loving and a faithful gospel work Thank you especially for sending your son, for giving up your son to die in our place on the cross because you love us so passionately. 
Thank you that he swapped places with us on the cross. That he was treated as if he was us. So that we can be treated as if we're him. Acceptable in heaven. As children of God. Lord, you have done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. May this church always be a church filled with joy at a remembrance of the great things you've done in, in Jesus. We also look forward to the great harvest. One day when you return and all things are renewed and restored. We ask that between now and then that we would be content to keep sowing in tears in confident hope that one day we'll arrive in heaven carrying sheaves of what you've done with the seeds sown by us. Whether it's in the Sunday school work, in conversation with neighbours and friends, with leading Bible studies or giving talks and sermons. We pray, Lord, that we would live by faith, looking forward to the future, content with the back-breaking toil of sowing, often with tears, because it's hard and often disappointing. But we pray, Lord, we'd have that great harvest in mind, because it's those who sow with tears who go out weeping, who will return with songs of joy, carrying sheets with them. We pray that the lasting and eternal impact of this church would be enormous. That there would be many, many, many people saved. Perhaps most of them never known to us in this life. But arriving in heaven with all the other pilgrims singing your praises forever. So may this church be a church that celebrates what you've done for us, but may this church also, for the next 10 years and beyond, be a church that sows the seed in confident expectation of the harvest. For we ask these things in your name. Amen.